back then we did everything by hand. Like she would stamp, she'd take wow. a piece of wax paper and pop little holes for the outside of the letter. Use an ink to stamp through those holes onto a felt and hand chenille, which is how it was started out way back when. Um, and so she's, that's how this whole thing got started was from Rooster Andrews in, at the University of Texas in Austin. And so that, that gives you a little background on, on how we actually got into this as a family. That's amazing. One of many things I love about Texas is the names that people have. And I haven't heard Rooster before, but <laughs> if I can convince my wife to have another kid with me, he or she might <laughs> be called Rooster. Hello and welcome, everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome, everyone. For today's show, we are speaking with Jay Powers, who is a good friend and also the CEO of All Rec Awards, which is a leading provider of varsity letterman jackets and, and patches to high schools and other schools in Texas and beyond. Jay, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you, Jory. Appreciate you having me on. So there are so many interesting things I'm excited to, to talk about and learn about with you about kind of your background, the business, et cetera. I'd love to just start with who you are, where you're from, how you were raised. Tell us about growing up. Tell us about your family. Tell us about your faith. would love to hear more about that as kind of foundational to everything you've done over the, the last number of years. So yeah, Jay Powers. I was born and raised in Waco, Texas, and uh, still live here. I have a beautiful wife, Donna, and three kids. One's in Belmont in Nashville. The other two are at Crawford High School here in the local area. So got a great family. Um, my background here in Waco, my grandmother actually was the originator of the company, which is now called Allrec. Um, she started this company in 1948. So we've been involved in this our whole lives and doing what we do. And so it's basically all I know. It's the well I keep digging. And so that's kind of the, the background on, on Allrec. And we'll go into what we do more here in detail later. But my faith my parents grew up in a Christian home, and our faith played a big role in all that we do, including our businesses. And so we're not apologetic about that, but that is a big piece of our business and how we operate our company. And I've got a sister who lives in Nashville, and she's not a part of the business, but she's been involved in just, you know, the, the good old sibling consulting most of the time. So she's dear, dear to me, and we love her. So that's my background again. Love it here in Waco. And now I think Waco's finally been put on the map for good things. So here we go. That's amazing. You mentioned, and I know how important your family is to you, uh, and I'm sure you are to your family. Um, <laughs> and you have some very talented kids. I'd love to hear about you know some of those talents, if you don't mind sharing, and then maybe dovetail that into kind of the, this is tangentially related, but the letter jacket business and, and kind of the range of you know, activities that are, you know, folks can earn recognition and patches for? Well, as long as I've been in this company, it, 
I'm now 49, so it's taken me a while to really realize what the importance of, of the letter jacket industry, which is, is our industry, is to, to kids since I have kids. But my daughter, she is now out of high school. She is a singer-songwriter at, the, at Belmont in Nashville, as I said, and she is you know, she's really done well in that industry. She's coming out with her second album now, which we're very proud of in the middle of recording that. But she is she's 20 next week. So uh, Morgan's just just a bright spot in our lives. And again, she's at Belmont. And I've got a son who is 16 going on 30, who actually goes to Crawford <laughs> High School. Now, he is my uh, he's my little athlete, of course. Everybody says that about their kids. But he's my little athlete. He plays football, runs track. Um Actually went to state this year in track, so he's, you know, being a dad that owns the letter jacket factory, he, his jacket is actually loaded up with patches. But he is, you know, proud of that and great customer so too. A, yeah, great customer. <laughs> and then I've got a a thirteen year old today. She just turned thirteen today. Happy board, birthday, Cami! And she goes to Crawford as well. She'll be in eighth grade next year, and she's not got a letter jacket yet, but she's she's an athlete, very heavily involved in soccer and track. So I finally get it. How you know how important this is to the parent as well as it is to the student in in the industry that we're in? Can you talk more about that? Kind of what it maybe what it means to the kids and and the range of you know activities that that they can you know earn recognition in. Sure, and 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 I might want to back up here. I don't know that I actually introduced what we do here at Allrec, which is we manufacture patches and Letterman jackets for high schools all over the country. So we service about. 7,500 schools across the country, and so that gives you a little detail there. The Scholastic Industry product is very important to both students and parents, and a lot of times administration. So it's important that these students are able to, A, have memories of their high school days, which are very important, but B, be able to show their, you know, have something to show for their hard work, whether it's academics, band, Athletics, of course, there's so many organizations and schools now where the kids work hard, you know, to be rewarded with a letter jacket and or a letter jacket patch. So there's a wide realm of things that that students can letter in nowadays and get patches for, which we're happy about. (laughs) Yeah, and it's great for these kids to get kind of recognition, too. And and I think you mentioned briefly in this conversation or a prior conversation, you know, it's also a way for them to kind of document and remember, you know, their experiences and their achievements from that pretty important, important time of their well, life. My grandmother, uh, Jory, just, just so you know, my grandmother in 1948, to be exact, started with one machine in her garage and the University of Texas, which we're Baylor fans, so it's even hard for me to say that. But the University <laughs> of Texas, a man by the name of Rooster Andrews, and if you're old school, you'll remember that because he was well known in Texas. He had a sporting goods shop and he came to my grandmother somewhere, I, I believe it was just at a little show here in Waco, and asked her, can you make these chenille letters, which people don't know what chenille is, it's like the carpety patches and or letters that are on letter jackets, asked her to make the University of Texas cardigan letters, which back then we did everything by hand, like she would stamp, she'd take wow. a piece of wax paper and pop little holes for the outside of the letter, use an ink to stamp through those holes onto a felt and hand chenille which is how it was started out way back when. Um, and so she's, that's how this whole thing got started was from Rooster Andrews and at the University of Texas in Austin. And so that, that gives you a little background on, on how we actually got into this as a family. That's amazing. One of many things I love about Texas is the names that people have. And I haven't heard Rooster before, but <laughs> if I can convince my wife to have another kid with me, he or she might <laughs> be called go. Rooster. 
Yeah, you should Google Rooster Andrews. It's an amazing story, and it's all it's it's all forgotten for us millennials and Gen X kids. Nobody remembers Rooster. Yeah, well, I appreciate you sharing that, and and you also mentioned kind of growing up in that. So if that was in 1948, you you were I don't know if you've shared your age, but you know you were probably born after 1948. So I'd love to hear how it was growing up with that. You know, were you visiting the shop when you were 10 years old or how did, how did you start learning about kind of the family business? So I was born in 1972. Thank you very much. I'm 49, about to be 50. And my dad- You don't look a day over 29, by the way. Thanks. I appreciate that, Jory. You don't look a day over that either. Um, So my dad actually was, when he graduated from Baylor University, he went into the insurance industry and moved to Paducah, Kentucky. And that was in the late 60s. In 1972, when my mom was pregnant with me, they decided to move back and work with my grandmother and grandfather in the company. So 1972 is when, obviously, I wasn't born yet, but it was when my family, immediate family, started to to work in this industry with my grandparents. So as I grew older, obviously, that was that was our life. Um, letter jacket patches, which is how we started. We never did jackets. We made the patches for years and sent them to the jacket manufacturer. So dad was doing that. But at an early age, I would go in in the summers when I was out of school, I would go into the office with dad all day, not every day, but a lot of days. And just, I mean, I probably was a pest to most of the employees, but you know, I started getting around the machines and how the operation worked at a young age. I would sit back there and clip threads so I've, I've been in the industry since I can remember. And again, when when my grandmother started in 1948, my dad purchased the company from my grandparents in the 1990, late 90s, 97, I believe. And at that point, we were still just making patches and sending them to the jacket manufacturers. But in early 2000s, I asked my, and we were still, in the early 2000s, Jory, we were still typing work orders, thousands of work orders a day on a typewriter. I know that sounds foreign nowadays. You can't even find a typewriter, but we were still doing that in the early 2000s. So I went to my dad and I said, dad, look, do you care if we computerize the offices? And also I'd like to start making my own jackets. And he, at that point said, look, I'm, I'm ready to kind of move on. I'd love to sell you the company and you can do all that. So that's how I became the owner of back then what was called powers embroidery. Um, and that's kind of the history of where it was. And then here we are now, 2022. It's amazing. 7,500 schools. Got to be a lot of a lot of patches and jackets. Before we talk a little bit more about the business, can you can you describe? So you grew up in the business, and then uh, you went to Baylor, not Texas. Can you share a little bit about kind of that experience, going from growing up in the business to you know college to after college, and you know how that dovetailed back into the into the letter jacket and the family business? Well, I'd like to say that uh, I just loved working at at the shop in my younger years in high school, but I actually never did. And I, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but my dad never wanted me to pressure, be pressured into coming into the family business. So in high school, I didn't ever work maybe in the summer, some for I mowed grass mainly. So I wasn't really involved in high school on the day-to-day operations or doing anything in, in the plant. So I went to, ended up graduating, ran track and cross country at Baylor university for two years and got injured my sophomore year. So I decided to transfer to a little school called Southern Nazarene University, SNU, which is up in Oklahoma City. So I graduated from college in 1994 and was a youth pastor for two years in Bryan College Station. So we're getting all these, you know, Aggies, Texas. Anyways, I was in Bryan College Station for two years and met my dad 
in between Waco and Bryan College Station at a little restaurant. He said, son, I really would eventually love for you to come back and work with me in the family business if you want to. And uh, that kind of put a little bug in my ear. And at that point, 1997, I moved back. I'm sorry, 1995, I moved back and started working with my dad here in Waco. And rest is history. The rest is history. The funny part about that, Jory, is, you know, I had t- uh, Christian education and a business admin major, double major, but I was working under the machines, repairing machines as a college graduate for $8.40 an hour in 1995. I don't know what that is relative to now, but I really went backwards. And it's the best thing my dad ever did. He didn't just hand me a silver spoon and say, come in here and can run all this stuff. He started me like under the machines. So that was one of the best things that had ever happened to me. And I never thanked him until recently for that. That's amazing. What do you think that experience kind of taught you? Was that, I mean, I guess, did your dad say you got to start here or what, you know, can can you tell us a little bit more about that specific experience and kind of what that meant to you and taught you? I don't actually remember. I know deep inside I was kind of bitter, like, oh my gosh, I thought it was going to be, this going to be a whole different experience coming in here. I didn't realize I was going to have to be a mechanic working for minimum wage. So at the time, I don't actually remember my my full emotions back then, but I do know that as the years went on and, and I was able to, to purchase the company, I knew everything in the company. So, you know, it's, it's the father-son relationship. You, you never really appreciate it until you get, you know, 49 years old and you look back and go, God, that was, that was just the best thing that could ever happen to me is for him to do it that way. So, again, I don't remember my emotions back then, but I do know now that the best thing that could happen in any, really in any company. If you if you look at statistics, third generation companies fail more than any other company. And I think it's because people aren't brought, the, the, the third generation not brought in properly and given the right instruction and given the right training and, you know, the motivation. It's not all easy. There is no business that's easy to run. So, you know, just very thankful for my dad. Mr. Miyagi, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Powers Miyagi. Yes. And I don't know if I mentioned this. I think I did, but the, you know, the the most important thing in our family was our faith and uh, raising a Christian home. And so my dad, back then, even at that age, I, my faith was not strong, and so I didn't really get it. And looking back now, you can see how just my dad's in-depth knowledge of the Bible and Scripture, and just how to really raise a family, raise raise children, was strictly biblical and and amazing. So very thankful for that. Can you? Talk a little bit about kind of that, your faith journey. I think to share on on my personal context, we're way earlier on in our faith journey, but you've actually been very helpful in kind of sharing with me yours. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about your faith journey. You mentioned being a pastor for a little bit as well. Can you share a little bit about that and and kind of in parallel with kind of your, your life story as well? Well, there's no way I could ever pretend to be perfect so let me just start off with that. You know, my, my faith journey is still building today at 49 years old. And, and you know, I look back and many people who were not raised in a Christian family, it's very difficult to really come to grasp that there is a creator. There is, Jesus is real. There's just too many facts, both from the Old Testament to the New Testament prophecies that are real, that prove that, that Jesus is real. But it, you can't just snap your fingers and believe that. So it has taken me a lot of years to to grow and build my faith. And I tie that into my parents, which I'm very grateful and thankful for. But now I'm 49 years old. I believe it and I see it. So when we run 
the business, all the different businesses that I've had and run, my main point is not to shove faith down anybody's throat, but is to to lead by example, which is definitely the hardest thing to do, and also just show how small things, how our faith relates to how the business is performing or not performing. And for, I love to give you this example. I think we have time. Um, back when COVID hit and all the schools shut down, right? We were like, oh my gosh, we don't have any business. My business partner and my brother-in-law, David Gooch, uh, who's a great guy. You may do a podcast with him eventually. He and I were like, look, we are going to take the money out of our pockets and we're going to pay these employees. But we want to be able to show them how God works through times like this. So that June, right after everything was shut down and we weren't getting any spring orders, our spring orders are huge because it's all the big bands and things of that nature. So if you miss that, you're that season, don't get any orders, then you're, you know, you're in, you're hurting for work. So we, we met with everybody. I think we had around 50 employees and said, look here, we are going to pay you for until August and let's see what happens. So we, it was like working at Google. We played shuffleboard for three months and didn't just have a whole lot to do. And of course, deep inside, Dave and I are like, man, we got to have some faith here because we're pumping out payroll every week, but we don't have any orders in here. And August came and nothing had changed. Schools were still online for that the, the fall. Very few were, you know, jackets were the last thing on in everybody's mind. So August came and Dave and I met with the crew again. We prayed. We said, look, let's just see what happens. We're going to go ahead and pay you all through October. If nothing happens, then we have to make some serious decisions. So in October, October the 15th to be quite exact, we got 1,584 orders in one day. And now I don't preach prosperity. I do not want to say, hey, yeah, you just pray and God's going to provide and and everything's hunky-dory. But that's what happened. So everybody, as we were praying for those six months and not getting any orders in, one day in October, right before we were having to really probably shut the doors, we got 1,584 orders in one day, which just to put that into perspective, usually a big day would be 80 orders. So you can multiply that out. Now, <laughs> then we had to figure out how to get it out the back door, but that's just a, just how we like to run our companies. and let, It doesn't have anything to do with us. It had nothing to do with us. We know that uh, we were able to just to share our faith and have faith and trust, which is all God asks us to have is faith and trust. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I mean, one of the really powerful things for me in in getting to know you better and and learning about how you kind of approach life and and faith and business has been that it permeates everything. It's you know for for you it is, and I think for many it just informs how you interact with people when there's a larger power and a lar- or a larger um, force in the universe to think about. I think it impacts a lot of the way people uh, sometimes, you know, choose to live their lives. And you've definitely not only, you know, kind of preached that, no pun intended, but also uh, practiced that. So I've appreciated uh, getting to know you and, and learning that and, and um, you know, trying to to be a better, better person myself uh, in that regard. So appreciate it. Certainly. Thank you for saying that. So talking a little bit more about the the kind of the letter jacket and, and patch business. Can you describe, and you mentioned it a little bit when you were talking about kind of the seasonal cycle and, and that example that you just talked through, but can you talk a little bit about how it works? So, you know, there's the fall and, you know, kids are making teams and there's banquet dinners, I think, and then there's a spring. Can you just kind of walk through literally how someone earns a jacket and then how those orders get to you and kind of the cycle of, of how the business works? 
we are not direct to market. When I say that, we don't actually have our own sales force that goes into the schools. We are what I call a wholesaler or whatever. We are a provider to reps, independent reps all over the, the country. So that rep, for instance, the Austin rep, goes into the schools and sells them their cap and gowns and their class rings and their letter jackets. So typically how that works is the athletic director and or the you know the director of the organization will contact them and say, hey, we need to set up a sizing for this particular organization. Those reps go in and they have packets which list all the things they can get on their letter jacket. They'll size them and they'll order their, you know, all the patches that they want on their jacket. And they turn those in in usually bulk. <laughs> we, we like bulk more than we like singles. But anyways, they turn those in in bulk. And then that order of 30 jackets will come in all together. And we take that in our system. We enter it in our system and it splits it up into where it goes. The jacket process, the patch process, the all the many, you know, the several different departments that it goes to. So that's kind of how it works on that scale, as far as the kids lettering, you know, some kids play six or seven sports. They'll letter in football, but then they'll add onto their letter jacket their patches for soccer or track or baseball or whatever it is. So, again, that's determined at that level. It seems like with all the permutations and all the sizes and all the names and all the, it's a fair, I mean, it's a pretty customized product. If not, every single one is almost a bespoke product. Is that fair? That is fair. And to add to that, Jory, you know, there's not very many people, not very many people in our industry because to mass produce onesies, which is what we do, because everything's custom. Everybody's, every kid's name's different on the back. Every patch with lettering in it is typically different unless, a, you know, somebody wins a state championship or something, then you get multiples of one thing. So it is a custom business on a mass scale. So it's an interesting niche that or niche that we're in. And don't have very much competition because of that. So, did that answer your question? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it it seems hard to do, but if you can do it well, you know, potentially pretty interesting business. Can you can you share a little bit? And it sounds like you know, given how long you all have been around and the reputation you've built, you've done it very well. So, are there any tricks to doing it well, or is it just showing up, being thoughtful, doing the work every day and, and making sure you're delivering for customers? What are what are the kind of some of the, the tips or tricks to, you know, in this business or just in general, making sure you're kind of delivering for, for customers in that regard? I'm not sure I know of any business that doesn't have a ton of variables that can de- determine the how you operate or how you deliver or whatever. So we're no different. We have there's so many variables in a custom business. We're not just mass producing a, you know, a two-inch bolt. We're mass producing tens of thousands of individual jackets. So I think the variables for us, we like to say we do it well, but we we depend. It's not us. We depend on a full crew of people back here, A, to be here, B, to be aware, and C, to actually care and stay motivated. And, uh, you know, when you own your own business, that's the, the number one thing is is your employees. They are your company. And so managing that and maintaining that is very important to us, but it's not an easy task. And especially in this environment after the pandemic and everything with just just a different market for labor right now and, and keeping them motivated and to be here. So we do care. We are family, like all the, the upper level management here, we're no different than anybody in the back. We th- That's a key to running a successful business. I know that's easy to say. It's not easy to do all the time, but that has for us been our number one priority is to make sure our, our employees know that A, we love them and B, we're here for them outside of 
business. And I think David and I and Jake and Brandon, we're all counselors just as much as we are trying to run the business. And and that's just, that's how you, I think, build a successful business. I love how you just describe that and, and as a family, because, you know, family is important to everyone. And, and in particular, you know, I think especially important to you and, and others in the business. I also um, think it's really powerful, you know, how you said it. But before you said that, you know, three minutes ago, you just shared an example of how you and David and others really kind of extended trust and for, you know, your extended family in bridging kind of payroll and, and, and things like that in a tough time. So I'd I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you build that trust over time, because I think it takes a very thoughtful, very, you know, maybe mid or, mid to long-term mindset to do that well and to do that thoughtfully. And you're kind of taking a, a bet that that trust that you're extending and that kind of investment and love and thought that you're extending will be reciprocated by folks. So I'd love to think or, or hear about how you have thought about building kind of that family and cultural environment amongst others in the in the business um, over time. Maybe I just think this, but I've felt in the past, I've felt like I am not really a good businessman because I care too much <laughs> and about customers and employees. And, and I, I don't have a, I don't know that I have an ounce of cutthroat in me, which some people say that's terrible if you try to run or, or operate a business. So in our company, and again, I'm not perfect, Jory, I can't even pretend to be perfect, but in our company, I'm an extrovert. I thrive on people in their moods and feeling accepted and knowing they are wanted outside of making a dollar, know that they're wanted. And that was inbred in me. My dad was the same way. My grandmother was the same way. So I can't take credit for any of this. I was given an amazing foundation from my family and and obviously my faith. But And, and I'm talking about me here, and I, and I don't want to. I, this, David's the same way. All of our leadership here are the same way. So to build your team, your employees, your family outside of your family – it all evolves around relationships, and they always say it's lonely at the top. Well, bring everybody to the top with you. Having a title or having a higher-paying position doesn't mean that you're better than anybody. So, you know, that's what I say is just bring everybody to the top. Make everybody feel like they're the only one that matters, and it's not that hard to do. And, again, we all live in this world today where one day is one it's, – it's like a bipolar world where today the – you know, whatever, take the stock market's up tomorrow, the stock market crashes. Today, inflation is tame. Tomorrow, inflation is out over the sky. It's just, we live in a bipolar world. So you just have to take that into consideration and in, in everything you do with, with your team and your family is, we're not always going to be on, on our game, but, you know, for the most part, that's that's how you build it. I would disagree with you in that you're not a good, I think you said businessman because you're not cut through it. I, I think in many ways, I almost see being cutthroat as short-term thinking. Like, if, you know, if, if you know, I'm trying to trade someone for an extra dollar here, dollar there, I'm not thinking about the long-term. I'm just trying to make a quick buck. So I, I almost see the approach that you take, which is investing in people, building culture, building a longer-term sustainable business and enterprise and team and family, just thinking long-term about what you're building. And I think that is obviously been foundational to you and your upbringing and and is also part of your faith but I think it's also just a long longer term entrepreneurial kind of acting like an owner with respect to the business and and the team so I appreciate you sharing that I'd love to chat a little bit about the some of your other passions and if you're open to it and and I know one is uh, faith and another is 
you know, ranches and, and land and developing them. You choose which which if uh, you want to go down either of those paths or both those paths. But I'd love for to to share that and and what got you into that and where that stands for you now. Well, obviously, I, I, as mentioned, you know, my faith is a big deal, and, and my wife and I and children love are involved in a lot of different ministries that basically outreach ministries. Um, in fact, we're all about to head to Africa uh, in July to visit one of the ministries and what, what's going on there, which is amazing for us. So that is a, probably a podcast in itself. But our faith is is important and a huge part of our daily lives. But to the ranch piece, you know, I grew up again with my grandfather picking me up from school back when you could just sign yourself out of middle school, ride your bike, your little mongoose with pads on at home, and your pawpaw would pick you up <laughs> in his Jeep wagon here at the house and go to the ranch every Friday during deer season. So I grew up going to to the ranch every weekend during hunt season with my dad and or my grand my grandfather. So I got you know just that was inbred in me. So back in 2005, I I bought my first ranch on my own, which was amazing in Texas, um, Central Texas, and somehow the market went way up, and I was like, hey. I could probably sell and make a little bit of money. This was back in two thousand, you know, seven ish, and so I I sold my first ranch, bought another one, and you know, th- things are different nowadays. You can't find land, big, you know, large parcels of land very easily in Texas. So back then, I, I just built up, and that's how I kind of started in the ranch. Never intended it for be. I don't really when you say ranch development, it's not like we parceled off small acreages and built houses and all that. It was just, we'd put some improvements on it, high fences, bring in some exotics, just started enjoying that and would flip the ranch and go to the next one. Um, so that is a big piece of what I do and what I love. We, my family and I, we just actually were blessed with being able to buy a few hundred acres right here in between Waco and McGregor, which is is booming right now. So we're building our, our house on that. But we also have another ranch out in East Texas that uh, first time I've been in East Texas, all the other ones have been in Central Texas, Lampasas County and Coriel and Hamilton County. So we're moving to the East Texas corridor to, uh, to the Empire to Spans, the Powers yeah. Empire, <laughs> something like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what what even goes into developing a ranch? Is, you know, is it just a raw piece of land, and then and then what do you do with it, and how do you decide what to do with it? Where do you even start for folks who don't know or understand that? Right. That's a great question. So for me, I, I typically want to find a piece of land. I've always wanted to at least have 300 acres to 1,000 acres. It's about the perfect size. You can't find it anymore nowadays, but that's how it started out, with nothing on it really. And then I would come in and over time put a you know some type of, of accommodation house not big and I would some of them have high fenced and brought in, you know, exotic animals, axis, black buck, odd ad, scimitar horned oryx. Right now we just started dabbling with the uh some New Zealand red stag, which are amazing. These sound like by the way, my our four year old is very into Star Wars right now. These these sound like they could be Star Wars creatures. Yeah. Scimitar sure. horned oryx. Keep going. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean <laughs> I didn't mean to derail you. This sounds like serious serious stuff. Yeah they it's been a big deal in you know in Texas just and a lot of people we don't I never did it for the hunting experience I did it just more for enjoyment of, of seeing them and things of that nature we never you know we never had paid hunts and caged them in high fences and all that stuff it was more in fact I've never shot an exotic that we bought 
Um, we've either sold the place or they're still on there. So um, to improve a piece of property, the ideal thing is to find something that has nothing on it and needs a lot of work. This one we just found in East Texas has been in the fam their family since 1853. We're talking almost, yeah, 160, 70 years. And so and it these, this man is 92 years old that we bought it from. It has nothing on it. Like it's got Catfish Creek that runs through it, huge pine trees. But I don't know if they've trimmed a bush in 170 years so it is raw as it gets but for me i i can I, I envision like what can be done on that and i didn't really buy this one to sell again there's not much to to replace it with nowadays so i'm i might be at the end of my rope on this but we bought this one just to improve and we're not going to high fence it but it's got a lot of different there'll be a lot of different hunting opportunities and my wife of all the ranches I've had, this is her favorite because it's not just cedars and mesquite trees. It's the tall pine woods. And so again, it's, you know, it's not easy to do it. And I never did it with the intention of, I'm going to put something on here and then sell it next year. It's just ebb and flows. And I may get an itch to get, go somewhere else and find something else or find another deal, not able to, you know, cash flow two places. So, you know, it's been kind of like that the whole time. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about the the one that you're just getting into and kind of how you found it? Because I think that's a how you found it, you know, why you were the right person for it and in, in kind of the owner's eyes, you know, because something that's been in the family since 1800s that, you know, that's a powerful decision. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are just trying to get the last buck, you know, make the extra buck. But there is a subset of people who care about kind of who, especially for something like that, where legacy and and who the counterpart is is important and certainly you've you fit that bill in a number of ways for these folks but i'm sure for many folks so I'd, if you don't mind i'd love to hear about that specific story and and why it was the right mutual fit with you and, and the current owners and, and family and what's amazing is the 400 acres we just bought and that we're actually going to be living on and this ranch in east texas were both owned by 92 year old men both men were selling their property because they didn't want their children to, the children didn't care about it and they didn't want them fighting over whatever over, over the land once, once they had passed away. So that's how we found both of them. So the one we're living on here in the McGregor area was a godsend because to find that kind of acreage in this area is unheard of. So I, I heard of it through a friend and it introduced me to the man and, and I told him, we went in there and I said, look, I want you to sell this land for the highest price for your family. And I get it. I want the land and I want it for my family for, for a long time. And I wasn't trying to sell them on selling it to me, but it didn't take three minutes for him and I to, to really understand why I wanted to buy it. And it, it was a no brainer for him to sell to me. So that was, a, that's a rare piece there and a rare situation. This other one, I didn't know the man and didn't, wasn't able to sit down with him. I just knew that he wanted to sell his property, and we went we went on it and made him an offer the same day we went on it. And we're still trying to uh, get through a couple of title things on it, but it just it was just a it was a match made in heaven, I guess. And so we again a lot of this when I hate to say luck because I don't really believe in luck, but I believe in blessing. And a lot of this was just blessings and right timing. Can you talk about that first one a little bit more? How you know how did you and that in that three minute conversation, how did, what was it that you were looking for and what was it that he was looking for that, you know, where you feel like you all connected and, and knew it was a kind of the right match and that you, you mutually trusted each other that that was the right match? Sure. Well, his wife, who is the same age, was there. And uh, so they were both, they're both living at home. Um, 
at their age, which is amazing. I hope I'm good for them. I'm not sure I'll live to 92, but they, they're both home and they get around really well. So they were both there sitting at their kitchen table when I got there, never met them before. This is at, this isn't the, the, the house that's on the land is an old house that they rent out to somebody. So I was at their house, which is not even close to their, to this ranch. So I met them there and we sat down at the table and I just, you know, we got to know each other and they sh- actually started sharing their faith. I shared my faith. And uh, so that was the, the, kind of the first little common denominators that, hey, we both, you know, we both love Jesus, believe in Jesus, and, and that's our, you know, our path. And so I think once we got through that, I just told him exactly what I wanted to do with this piece of property. And I don't even know that I told you this. It wasn't on the market. So my buddy, my son's best friend at Crawford, his dad runs cattle on this 400 acres. And he came to me and said, Jay, look, this man that owns this land, I don't think he wants my cows on his land anymore. Can I move your, my cows to your event ranch? And I said, no, but hey, how about you introduce me to this man? <laughs> Thinking, you know, I, I didn't know what he wanted to do with the land. So I didn't go in there even knowing if they would want to sell it. That's a huge piece of this story. Sorry that I left that out. So when I went in there, I just went in there and explained to them why I was there. And they, they knew why I was coming. But um, so when we got to that point of, of the land, I just said, hey, here's what I want to do. My family, we really want to... Re- have this piece of land and for generations we don't want to buy it because most people would come in develop it because it's in the primo part of town develop it and make a bunch of money on it that wasn't our goal at all our goal is to you know build our our last house so to say and uh, live there so we went through that story and then by the end of it i gave him a number and he said let us pray over it i'll call you tomorrow i got in my truck in the driveway i didn't even get my truck started and he called me and said, "Hey, we want to sell it to you." So, that's kind of a little bit more detail on it. That's great, and it, I love hearing stories where you know I I grew up in the Northeast and worked in a number of different environments where everyone's and, and makes sense. Everyone's trying to do a deal and you know maximize their outcome financially. But I love hearing stories about you know people that care about that and want to get a fair price, but also want to you know it's more than just an asset that someone's flipping. They're they're trusting someone with something that's, you know, either been in their family for, in this instance, literally, you know, 150 years or so. And I think it's it's very cool and, and probably powerful for me it is, I think for you too, to be trusted by people with that sort of, uh, you know, to be, to be a recipient of that sort of uh, trust from them in something. Right. And let me communicate with you, Jory, on that one last piece of that. After we started talking, that's when he had said, "Look, we were we were going to need to sell this for our children because none of them are interested, and we don't want them." So that's where that piece played in with the same piece in East Texas. Uh, so that was after the he decided to to sell it to me. Thank you. This has been amazing. Love learning more. I I uh, we've known each other for a little while now, but I learned more about you, especially kind of growing up. I loved hearing the story of you working under some of those, you know, some of the chenille machines. So I appreciate you sharing all that, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to close. I always close with the same question of folks, and it's kind of modeled after a take a penny, leave a penny dish at a you know at a gas station or convenience store if you're familiar with that. But the goal here is for you to leave something, you know, whether it's a a tip or an insight or a business book or a passage or something that has been helpful for you in building you know kind of your life and your business that you could share with the community. Um, so I'd love you know, to hear that. And then the, the follow-on question will be the other, the the take a penny, you know, is there anything uh, our community can do to 
support you in, in something that you're working on? What I'd like to leave today is just to let each person that, that hears this know that one, in when your business really is second to your faith and your family, if you can, you know, realize and, and take that to heart from the very beginning, you know, we, we all take business so seriously and we think it's the end all be all. And it controls and dictates our moods at home. It controls and dictates, you know, how we, our sleep patterns and all that. So the one thing I would love to leave with, with you is that this is a vapor. This life is a vapor. And it's what you do. And in, in, again, I can't pretend to be perfect, but what you do with and how you treat and how you, you know, the, the attention you pay to your family and your, your significant other is, is important. So that's one piece that I've had to learn over the years is that business is not the baby your family is. So that's important. And and I'd obviously like to leave a scripture that, that really hits home with me. It's 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and it says, Be on guard, stand firm in faith, be courageous, and be strong. And to tie into that is to be on guard is not necessarily being on guard. It's to t- check yourself daily and you know, it's hard to be selfless rather than just being selfish. But being being on guard is basically to me means being selfless. So, you know, and that's with your employees, with your, you know, your family. And that's just a verse that I love to, to acknowledge and memorize and, and live my life by. Well, you certainly in some of the stories you shared today and in some of the other stories that I've gotten to know about you uh, have lived that. So appreciate you sharing that and, and appreciate you living by it. Thank you. Thanks, Jory. All right. So the last question is the is the take a penny. What can our community do if we had a magic wand? You know, what are you working on that, you know, we can be helpful with for you, whether that's recruiting good people to something you're working on or, you know, following a newsletter that, you know, I'm making all that stuff up. But what's something that, that we can be helpful for you with? You know, I think right now our as a company, the biggest thing with post-pandemic, running businesses post-pandemic is is labor and just the amount of backlog, the amount of things that, you know, the supply chains and everything to get that all caught up and to be back on your normal delivery dates. You know, we love the fact that people want their letter jackets when it's 110 degrees outside. We really do love that because we want the letter jackets to be important. Right now, it's just patience to get so that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you can't even get home supplies or uh, appliances now for eight months. It's kind of the same way in most industries. So we're just asking for patience. I don't know how anybody can help with that, but we're just asking for patience until we can, you know, really in anything you're dealing with that has delayed times now. I mean, we're, we lived in a world for so long where it was snap your fingers, order it, and it's in your mailbox on Sunday at 10 a.m., which is crazy. But, you know, that, that whole Amazon effect has, changed the uh, world. And now that we're post-pandemic, I think everybody's forgotten we had all those supply chain issues and all the all the things that uh, delayed deliveries and labor and all that. So, Jory, if I need a penny, that's the penny I need, which is just patience. <laughs> patience and great and great people. I think that pays forward to all the other people that are in the same boat as, as, as us manufacturers that, you know, sometimes it's just not worth it's not worth the the meanness and the madness people get over not getting their product in a this quick as they were used to. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, and no better no better endorsement for a a great product that 
you know, people are willing to wear a letter jacket and a, or, you know, order and get a letter jacket in 110 degrees, you know, you all aren't just selling jackets, you're selling emotion and recognition and, and uh, you know, rewards for, for kids who have worked their butts off to, to earn it. So for anyone out there that is uh, looking to uh, join a, a great company and a great team and uh, make a meaningful product with people that, that care, reach out to us and, and we'll make sure we connect you with, with Jay and the team at Allrec. Thanks, Jay, very much. Appreciate you taking the time. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe maybe in a couple of years we'll record another episode and it'll be at the, the kitchen table at your ranch once it gets built out. <laughs> Sounds like a plan, Jory. Thank you, sir. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit Enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 